Good morning, East Van. A special um, shout out. Uh, let me extend a welcome to those of you who are here who are new. If you're here and you're exploring faith, uh, just a special welcome to you. I'm, I'm so glad that you're here and trust that something that happens today through the music or the preaching or a conversation will, will resonate. You'll feel the warmth of a God who is welcoming uh, here today. One of my very first jobs was for the U-Haul Moving Company. For the massive salary of $6.25 an hour, I was outfitted with a tight-fitting, all-brown uniform. Now, no pictures of this era survived. I'm relieved. You're very relieved. And each day, I would work in the yard and would receive equipment that was being returned, trucks and, and trailers and appliance dollies and all these types of things. I would inspect it, clean it, make sure it was ready for the next person. My boss had a kind of laissez-faire management style. He believed that employees should kind of supervise themselves. Unfortunately for me, that meant that my de facto supervisor was a guy named Glenn. My, the first time that I met Glenn, he had the facial demeanor of someone who had just drank some sour milk. Unfortunately, that was a little window into how my relationship would look like with my supervisor. He was demeaning. He would go on these verbal tirades with extremely strong language. He seemed always annoyed and frustrated. A simple question would be responded to with contempt and hostility. And I thought, what, what gives, what, what did I do to deserve this? One particular day, a truck came in. There was mud all over the truck. It took a long time for me to clean. I cleaned it, drove the truck back to its spot on the lot. And then I saw Glenn walk across the yard to inspect it. And I knew the way that he was walking, this wasn't going to go well. He inspected it started it up, screeched the tires in anger and drove the truck back into the washing bay and just unloaded with all kinds of expletives and another verbal tirade. It was a really uncomfortable summer working at that job. What, what do you do in the face of someone who is openly hostile? I kind of believe I can get along with anyone. What do you do when you can't seem to get along with someone? When someone is an adversary? You know, Glenn did not carry a lightsaber, but that summer, Glenn was my Darth Vader. <laughs> do you have a Darth Vader figure in your life? Someone that you cannot get along with? A relationship, perhaps you start to resent them because of, of, of how that relationship is going. How are we as followers of Christ to respond to our adversaries, to our enemies? Psychologists would tell us that one of three things usually happens. You respond with fight. You try to get them back in some way. They insult you. You insult them back. Perhaps it's flight, you just avoid them, or maybe it's freeze, where you become paralyzed and you don't know how to respond. But the question I want to ask is, 
Does Christ call us to respond differently? Is there something unique in the message of Jesus that calls us to respond to our adversaries, our enemies, in a unique way? Well, this morning we're continuing a series on the paradoxes of Jesus. And as we lead up to Lent and go through Lent, we're looking at some of the most difficult things Jesus ever said. Some that seem confusing, paradoxical, too challenging. It strikes me that, as I believe G.K. Chesterton said, the first time you read the teaching of Jesus, you think everything is upside down. And the second and third and fourth time you read it, you realize, no, Jesus is setting everything right. He is describing the new kingdom that we are called to live, the new values that we're called to live in. And today we're going to look at at some of the most challenging words that he ever spoke. In fact, if we were to hear this and follow it, it would transform human conflict. If we were to listen and follow the words of Jesus, it would end wars. Now, just before we get to his famous teaching on this topic, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a first century Jew. You're living in a small town, perhaps on the shores of the Sea of Galilee on the north side, and you are living in abject poverty because you are living in a militarized zone. The Romans are occupying your homeland and are making life difficult. They are brutal and oppressive and violent. They are taxing you and your family and your loved ones and your neighbors 80 or 90%. You have no idea how this is sustainable. Land is being stolen. There are rumors of uprisings But those are quickly squashed. In fact, some of your friends who spoke up or tried to resist were killed. And you're living in this culture and this time. And as a good first century Jew, you pray and you remember that God has delivered you in the past from your enemies, from Egypt and Babylon and the Assyrians. And you long for the day when the Messiah comes riding on his stallion, sword in hand, and frees you from those oppressive Romans. You long for that day. And you've heard whispers that a man named Jesus from Nazareth, of all places, is teaching some very compelling things. And could, could this be the one? Could this be the one who ushers us into freedom from our oppressors. And you go and listen to him speak, and here's what he says, Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes 
the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect. Or in other translations, be complete or whole or mature, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. For a few minutes uh, this morning in our remaining time, I want to explore this text with you, and I want to ask three questions. First of all, who is your enemy? I look out and I see some very kind and loving and generous people here. You don't have any enemies, do you? This message is for someone else, right? You're already thinking, I need to forward this message to so-and-so. My experience is whenever I'm sitting in church and I hear a message and I think, this would be so good for that person, that the Spirit of God gently reminds me, don't sidestep this. There's something here for you. Do you have any enemies? Who, who might those be? Second, what are we called to do? We're, we're called to love our enemies. What does that actually mean? Are we supposed to feel warm feelings of affection towards our enemies? And finally, how can we even begin to do this? What might be some steps on this journey? So first, who is your enemy? In this passage, Jesus quotes something He says, you've heard it said, love your enemy, but I say, love your enemies. Notice the singular to plural. I believe he is widening the net to include both enemies who are close to us, adversaries who are close to us, personal enemies, and political enemies, those who are far away, those who we disagree with their ideology. So explore this with me for a moment. Who is it that you cannot get along with? Are there any relationships in your life where there is hostility? Perhaps it's a boss. Perhaps it's an ex-spouse, a co-worker. I'm struck that some hostility might be in your own home. Now, we think of of enemies and and, uh, conflict in a sort of fiery, angry way, but there exists in many marriages a kind of cold war where communication is cut off. There's a, there's a chilliness to that relationship. Is there, is there someone in your life which you would say, yeah, that, that exists in my life right now? Is there someone who has hurt you? And you know our instinct when we're hurt is to hurt them back, maybe a little bit more than they hurt us. Is there someone who is perhaps a competitor Now, this afternoon, two warring competitors will go head-to-head in the Super Bowl. There will be the wonderful and amazing Kansas City Chiefs, who will be facing the godless and evil San Francisco 49ers. I don't think I'm projecting, uh, so we'll move on. Um, Perhaps there's someone, like a, a, a colleague, that got hired at the same time, and they keep getting promoted, and it stings you a little bit. 
or there's a competitor in your business that it's easy for you to see them as the enemy. Perhaps there is someone with whom you strongly oppose or disagree with. A polarizing politician, perhaps. I believe it was last week, my wife and I and daughter were at someone's house for dinner. And we had this enjoyable time of, of greeting and catching up. And the meal was served, and one of the hosts looked to me and, and said, what do you think about... And she mentioned the name of a highly polarizing politician, possibly could have been a former president of the United States, um, but I don't want to mention any names. And I thought, How? like, we haven't even eaten the meal yet. I, I don't want to get kicked out before I'm eating. Why don't we eat and then we can talk after? It, I don't know if I, that's a safe environment to talk. I don't know if, if I say something, then I'll be the enemy. And we live in a, a tribalistic kind of culture where, where we retreat to our corner and we throw grenades at the person who doesn't agree with us or we cancel them. Maybe there is somebody that you secretly despise. Let me throw out some terms and see if this prompts anything. It could be conservatives or progressives. It could be so-called right leaning, right-wing leaning, or left-wing leaning. It could be pro-Israel or pro-Palestine, pro-aid to Ukraine or anti-more aid to Ukraine. It could be pro-carbon tax, no-carbon tax, vaccinated, unvaccinated. The list goes on. Are there some ideological enemies that we would say that they're wrong, and they're not just wrong, but they're they're my enemy, and I am at battle against them. So as we progress through this passage, ask yourself, Lord, is there someone that you're bringing to mind? You know, it's possible that we can also have, I'm going to call this um, instant enemies. Something happens, and we feel a wave of anger or rage. It's, it could be the person at the checkout who is going so slow, and given our day, we we look at them, and we look at them as the problem. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was driving here on 33rd Avenue, and I was making a left turn onto Main Street. And I don't know if you know this, but sometimes when the light turns yellow, people speed up. They think, I got to get through that light. And when you're making a left turn, um, this kind of annoys me after a while. I'm sure I've done it, but... On this particular day, it was really annoying me. And the light turned yellow, and I waited for people to clear the intersection. And one gentleman driving a Subaru, maybe you're here today. Um, <laughs> the light was in its latest, you know, yellow stage and was turning red and I was about to go, and he was like, no, I'm going to get in front of you before you turn left. And as he did that, I just laid on the horn for a good three seconds. Man, did that ever feel good. <laughs> and as he went by, I caught his eye, and he caught my eye. And I was kind of fierce. And then I thought, uh-oh, what if he goes to 10th church? <laughs> 
Things can happen in the day where we look at someone as the problem, as the enemy. And so as we progress through this, be thinking about a person. Maybe painfully, that person is in your own home. Think about, think about who the Lord might direct your attention to today. Second, what are we called to do? Well, you heard the text. We are called to love our enemies. Love your enemies. God is love. God is one who loves his enemies. He has made us in such a way in which we are called to love. We are at our best selves We are most like our Father when we love even our enemies. We are most fully human when we love. What does it look like to to love our enemies? Is this a feeling? Are we being commanded to feel something? Well, as you probably know, the word in Greek is the word agape. Thomas Aquinas, the renowned theologian of the church, put it this way, he said, love is to will the good of the other. It is a choice of our action, of our volition, of our will. That means we are choosing the good of the other. We are seeking the best for the other. We are committed to the flourishing and the blessing and the benefit of the other. Love is not to to feel the good of the other, but to will the good of the other. It means that we are for our enemies. It doesn't mean we agree with them or what they're doing, but we are for them as people. Bishop Robert Barron is an amazing commentator, and in one of his talks, he says this, that the enemy love is the greatest test of love. He says that when we love a friend or an ally, the arrangement is I love you and you'll love me back. I'm kind to you and you'll be kind back to me. I am generous to you and probably you're going to be generous to me. And the question is are we really willing their good or are we willing our own good through them? Is it, in some ways, a way of saying, this will go better for me if I treat you well. You'll treat me well back. But he said, the difference with loving your enemies is that when you will their good, they don't will that back for you. In fact, they will and choose ill of you. Harm. And it's the purest form of love because it probably will not be reciprocated. This is the greatest and the purest and the highest form of love that when we are acting in loving ways towards others who will not reciprocate, in fact, who even mean us harm. This is why it's so central to the teaching of Jesus. And when Jesus says this, He adds in, when you love your enemies, 
And pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This kind of love reflects the love of Jesus, the the love of God. It's the love of Jesus on the cross for his enemies. When you love someone that is hostile with no chance of reciprocating, that is the highest form of love. Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in prison. It probably took him, as some have suggested, 27 years to work through the hurt and the anger. But as he left, he did not leave full of revenge and retaliation. In fact, he said, if I were to do that, I would have still been imprisoned. But as he left, he he actually worked with his enemies toward the transformation of their society. When we love, we interrupt the cycle of retaliation, the endless cycle of retaliation. Martin Luther King put it this way, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Arthur Brooks is a renowned author and he tells a story of several years ago writing a book that really seemed to resonate for people. Um, The president at the time, different president, President Bush uh, invited him and um, a lot of publicity got out about his book. And he said the, the interesting thing was every day I would get dozens and dozens of emails from people I didn't know. Many of them were warm and and quite vulnerable. Let me tell you my story. Here's why your book resonated. But he said, not all of them were. One day he gets this email. It's 5,000 words. It took him 20 minutes to read. And the email went like this. Dr. Brooks, I read your book. I hated it. I totally disagreed with your thesis. I thought your examples were weak. I hated the tone of your book. And this went on for 5,000 words. Arthur Arthur Brooks is a deeply committed follower of Christ. He has reflected on what it looks like to love your enemies. He's reflected on this and he hit reply. Now imagine, imagine when somebody attacks you like that. Imagine what emotions start to, you know, to fire up inside you. How you want to set them right. How you want to defend yourself. Arthur Brooks writes, thank you for your email. I understand that you did not like anything in my book. But the thing is, I worked on this for two years and I put my whole heart into this book. And you read every single word. I can't tell you how much that means to me. You took it seriously. Thank you. Send. 15 minutes later, he gets a reply. Dear Arthur, If you're ever in Dallas, would you like to have dinner with me? (laughs) That's a a beautiful and amazing story. But I, I can't imagine that was an easy email for Arthur to write. Everything in me would want to defend myself or let me let me set the record straight here. What will interrupt the cycle of retaliation? It's love. How do we begin to do this? 
Third and finally, what does this look like to begin to love our enemies? The first thing that I think we're called to do is pray for them. Now, I know when prayer is one of the application points, that feels a little trite and simplistic. But it's actually in the text, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You may need to spend some time praying for the ways in which you've been hurt, and you may need some healing to happen. But the scripture also says that we are to pray for our adversaries. And I I don't know about you, but something mysterious happens in prayer. The person that we have demonized, when we begin to pray for them sincerely, you know, the horns start to fall off. They look a little less demonic. The pitchfork gets put down, and we see them as people. We see them as people who God loves, who've been created by God who Jesus died for. There is some kind of common ground thing that happens in the middle of prayer. One of my uh, colleagues uh, recently, um, I noticed on his screensaver that he had a picture of a, quite a polarizing politician. And I said, oh, you're, you're a fan, are you? And he said, no, not at all. And I said, what, why do you have his picture on your screensaver? And he said, it's a reminder to pray for him. He said, I was really challenged in, in reading the Sermon on the Mount because I found that I was reacting strongly. Everything this person said, every decision they made, every policy they introduced, I was violently opposed to it. And I was feeling some resentment and bitterness. So I put this picture there as a call to pray. And I said, well, what happened when you did that? And he said, well, One of the things that happened is I started to realize that what a difficult job that person is in. How challenging would that be to have every decision critiqued? This person has a family. I wonder what family life and personal life looks for them, looks like for them. And he he began to, with all beauty and sincerity, begin to say, "This, this is what it looks like for me to love my enemy is to pray for them. Maybe, maybe that's the only thing you can do is to begin to pray for them. That's a, that's a great start that we're called to do. The second thing is don't avoid. One of the reasons that we don't have very many enemies that we can identify is in our culture, we can just avoid them. If you don't like your boss, you just leave. If you uh, don't like your neighbor, you can move. Now, let me just put a, say an important caveat here is sometimes you do need to avoid your enemy. While the teaching of Jesus is really clear that we're to love them, how you do this takes discernment. It takes the Spirit's discernment. It takes community discernment. So if you're in a situation where you are unsafe, where you are being threatened, then I want to urge you to share that with someone you trust and pray together and discern together how you might respond. Having said that, I don't believe that our call, generally speaking, is to avoid those who are adversarial to us. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. What good is salt if it stays in the salt shaker? That we are to engage those that we disagree with. We are to listen You know, what happens in our culture is we retreat into little cloisters of groupthink, of 
people who agree with us, who have the same political views, who have the same theological views, and we live in this echo chamber and it feels good. And we point at the bad guys over there and say they are wrong and they are evil. But friends, our call is to engage with those adversaries, those so-called enemies, to listen, not not listen so you can anticipate what they're going to say and use it against them, but really get out of your own perspective. Spend some time trying to really seek to understand what's behind their argument. What are they passionate about? Now, you might be surprised what happens. So we, we pray for them. We don't avoid, but we engage. And finally, we seek their good. We look to serve, to bless, to contribute in some way to our enemies, to help them. Ray Matheson is uh, one of my closest friends, Dan, who serves as the pastor of the West Side. Um, Dan's dad is Ray, who used to live in Regina, Saskatchewan. Many years ago, Ray was elected as a school board, uh, a member of the school board. And uh, somebody came up to him who was also elected the day after the election who diametrically opposed Ray in everything. I mean, they were on totally opposite ideological spectrums here. And this man came up to Ray and said, well, Ray, it's going to be a long term with you and I on the board. Are you ready for the battle? And Ray, in his typical fashion, said, who knows? Maybe we'll become friends. And Ray began to engage with his opponent, his, his adversary, and tried to understand him, tried to listen to his story. What was his family like? Where was he from? What motivates him? Sort of dropped the ideological differences and knew him as a person. And it came up in a conversation that this other school board member, his son, had just lost his job. It was difficult to find another job, and Ray thought to himself, well, I know somebody who occasionally does hiring. I wonder if I can make a connection. Long story short, Ray finds this opponent of his, his son, a job. And they work together in this kind of way for the next two years, and re-election time comes up. And Ray's enemy, his adversary, they, they weren't any closer ideologically. But he actually campaigned for Ray. And he told people, you should vote for Ray. And people said, why? You're not even close like, on, the, on the spectrum of your ideas. Why would you do that? Ray is the kind of person that we need on our school board. And then he let it slip out. He said, Ray is my friend. Now, friends... Not always can an enemy be turned into a friend. That doesn't always happen like that, but sometimes miracles do happen. And when we love our enemy, we interrupt the cycle of retaliation. We reflect the heart and the love of a God who loves his enemies. We are never more like our Father when we love our enemies. How do we do this? It's impossible in our own strength. But this morning, in a moment, we're going to come forward 
And we're going to receive the life and the body of Christ again at this table. And this is so appropriate because the life of Christ in us can do this. The power of Christ in us can help us love our enemy. We can't do it on our own strength. And so we come to the table as needy people saying, God, live your life and your love through me. Help me. Give me that strength to do that. And I want to conclude with a beautiful prayer attributed to St. Francis. Perhaps you can close your eyes and allow these words to become your own prayer. Lord, make me an instrument of peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born born to eternal life. Amen.